Matthew 26, start in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you have come for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and that he will at once put my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Even every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were the Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus as Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. A little while, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Well done, Aaliyah. Awesome. There's a lot of verses. She just gets back from vacation. We hit her with 45 verses. Well done. It's good. Hey, this might, well, hey, 11 a.m. How are you guys? I think this, this might be the first time the 11 a.m. Is, is, there's more people at the 11 than the 9. I think you're the World Cup crowd. Is that true? Okay, good. Figured. I won't even pretend I know what I'm talking about with soccer, so let's move on to the sermon. So yeah, my name's Evan, uh, my wife Sandy and I, we have the joy of leading this church forward with an amazing team. And yeah, it, in order to just help you feel more comfortable and less like this is a crowd and more like it's a community, there's a connect desk back there, we'd love to get to know you. Sign up for the weekly, all of that. We'd love to get to know you. Today, as you just heard, we are, we are flying over a huge chunk of Matthew. Um, we've been in Matthew for most of our life as a church. Aaliyah just read this 45 verse section. It's Jesus' final hour with his disciples before his execution. And this whole passage is really a dramatic group of stories about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. You really see Matthew contrasting the character of Jesus with specifically Peter and Judas. Um, and what we're gonna see is Jesus basically gets abandoned by everybody and he's betrayed, and it looks like his enemies win. And we're gonna look at this section in detail over the next three weeks, like just verses 36 through 46. Jesus suffers something bordering on a panic attack in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he shows us what it looks like to give God the full range of our emotions. I think that's gonna be good, good for me and all of us, I think. Um, it's not a message I, I heard a lot of growing up, is how Jesus disciples us in our emotional health. And that's next Sunday. And then the following week, Jesus surrenders like non-resistant, non-violently to his enemies, actually practicing what he preached back in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then the last Sunday of July, Jesus finally declares his own identity. Like he's silent until this moment. He just, he just declares, I am the son of man. It's the most important information the world will ever receive. And as he declares that, he seals his fate and gets executed, okay? So those are the stops on the roadmap for, for this month. And, and, but today we're flying 10,000 feet over this whole section. 
to see this interplay between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, we're gonna see that the disciple's story is our story. The disciple's story is our story here. Um, they just enjoyed this intimate Passover meal with Jesus. And now in this next group, it's like a whole nother feeling just starts descending on the text. And their worst fears are coming true. And when push comes to shove, <laughs> without the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples prove totally undependable. And at the same time, when push comes to shove, Jesus proves completely dependable and to the point that he actually predicts his followers' undependability. And he knows this, and that's like this constant source of comfort we hear coming through the text. He knows they're gonna fail, and he's faithful for them, which is so encouraging. So look at the first verse of our passage up on the screen in your Bible, verse 31. Jesus told them this very night, <laughs> what does he say? You will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, and he quotes Zechariah, I'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. And so um, I, wanna, I wanna focus on just three movements in Jesus' prediction. He's like, you will, like he knows this. The word will, he's like, you will fall away. Jesus knows this about them, and then you will all fall away. No one's excluded from this prediction. And then he says, you'll all fall away because of me, on account of me. Like Jesus knows his disciples won't just doubt him. They won't just be unfaithful to him. They'll actually be offended by him and react against his actions in this text. They'll fall away because of Jesus. Either it's their lack of understanding of Jesus' mission to suffer or the way Jesus like peacefully, nonviolently submits to his enemies and it looks like giving up. Uh, whatever it is, it's all too much for his disciples, and so they just hightail it, and they run for their lives, and they abandon Jesus. And so through this section, the disciples' fragility and undependability covers the whole thing like a ground fog. You ever driven in a fog, like a dense one? Um, it's debilitating, and you're scared, and it's this feeling like you're totally out of control of the inertia of this vehicle, and it's really a horrible feeling, and that's kind of what's happening to the disciples. They're in this ground fog, and they're confused, and that's what Matthew's saying, but Matthew's also saying something more primary, <laughs> that above the ground fog, there's this sun that is blazing, <laughs> and it's that, <laughs> it's that Jesus will see this through. <laughs> he knows their fog, and he knows his faithfulness, and he's got it. It's, it's the message over our fog, okay? And so in the same breath that he predicts his disciples' failure, he also predicts his own victory, and not just his victory, but their victory. Look at the next verse. He says, but after I've risen, so his victory, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Like he's, he's predicting that they won't stay scattered. I've never really read that before this week. He's predicting they'll actually make it, which is profound. What the resurrection does and what the Spirit is already doing is profound. He's predicting that he will see this through and the victory will be theirs to share. 
You guys, this is the overriding message of the passage. Here it is. Jesus knows that the solution to his disciples' doubt, insecurity, fear of death is for Jesus to endure their abandonment of him. And his faithful suffering and death and resurrection will lead to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his disciples. It means new life, new confidence, new security, and new power for them, even when it's their turn to die. It's hard to imagine that this group of men are the same group of men Fox's Book of Martyrs writes about, and they die just dauntless, relentlessly declaring who Jesus is and was and will always be, all the way to the most bloody, grisly deaths you can imagine. It's hard to imagine it's the same group of guys. Jesus predicts that they will be those guys. (laughs) It's profound. So why is this relevant to us today? Hopefully you're getting, it's washing over us all. Why is it relevant? Remember, This collection of stories is about Jesus followers. Like it's not just about enemies out to kill Jesus. It's not about Israel or Rome only. It's actually more about people who want to be for Jesus. Like it's about Jesus fans. People who like him. People who'd be sitting in church on a Sunday. People that that gravitate to new church plants. And and, uh, when the going gets tough, that Jesus fans abandon Jesus. That's what this is about. Again, it's this ominous cloud over these stories that there is no innocent party in the story except for one. And it's a dark thing to talk about, but Matthew takes us there. So as 21st century Western Jesus followers, we're reading about first century Jewish Jesus followers, and what we discover is this, the disciple story is our story. Independent from Jesus, we are totally undependable. (laughs) Jesus knows this, that's where the comfort comes. He knows this, he sees our flakiness a mile away, and he faithfully steps into our mess to transform us. And now, how do we access that transformation That's a big question in in discipleship today. Like, how do we change? How does a Christian become less (laughs) unchristian? Because that seems to be a problem all the time. How do we change? Well, now our only path to forgiveness and spirit-empowered transformation is to remember Jesus' words and admit, key word, admit our complete dependence on his faithful work. That's really the message today. I mean, I'm gonna talk for another 15, 20 minutes, but that's it, right there, that last paragraph. And I'll say it this way, I'll come at it from this angle. Uh, independence is basically a myth. And I know that's a hard sell, like three days after Independence Day to a bunch of Americans, you know? <laughs> but the reality is independence is a delusion. One of the primary recurring themes is the Bible is that independent from God and other humans, humans just don't tend to do well like that. This is why I say independence is a myth. I mean, even the secular humanist playwright, George Bernard Shaw, he got this right, I think, where he says, independence? That's middle-class blasphemy. We're all dependent on one another, every soul of us on earth. I say that's pretty good for an atheist. Uh, But I'll do him one better. Not only are we dependent on one another socially, but we're also collectively dependent on the gracious healing presence of the creator God. 
This has always been the story of God's people. What was the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden? The original sin. Yeah, it wasn't just a really good piece of fruit. What did that represent? It was humanity attempting to define what was good independent of the good creator. Like the whole knowledge of good and evil thing, that represents humanity seeking its own defining categories for what's good and evil rather than the ones God provided. On page three of the Bible, we see it go down. The serpent, who represents who? The Satan, yeah. He convinces humanity to take their lives into their own hands and define for themselves what is good, beautiful, and true. And then from that moment on, it's like a cycle. Everything after page three of the Bible, story after story of us humans seeking autonomy independent from God and it's disaster every time. I mean, just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. You have Adam and Eve, page three, and then Cain and Lamech, page four. All in one page, Cain murders his brother and Lamech makes polygamy a global trend, okay? So that's, pretty, that's a lot for one chapter, that's pretty good. And then, and then Noah, he starts pretty good, but he doesn't end very well. It's this weird, funky story of drunkenness and some weird sexual stuff with one of his descendants. It's really kind of gross. And then Tower of Babel, I mean, that's the pinnacle, literally, of man, human, humanity, <laughs> building something with the express purpose to make a name for themselves independent of God's name. This is just the cycle of our propensity here. And that's the main repeating chorus through the song of the Old Testament scriptures. And then in chapter 12, thankfully, God raises up a family. Whose family? Abraham, good, that's good. <laughs> Abraham's family. <laughs> Abraham's family, uh, next, next slide. Abraham's family repeatedly seeks independence from God and they end up serially abandoning God and each other. And again, God faithfully steps into their mess. That's the cycle. God faithfully keeps stepping into their mess when they admit their need and dependence on him. That's it, you guys. And the next slide, the rest of the Old Testament, there it is, summed up. Boom, wash, rinse, repeat. That's the whole thing. It's literally the story of the people of God. And now in Matthew, here we are in Matthew 26, Jesus' final hour with the people of God, the disciples, the chosen ones, and the story repeats itself. The recurring story of God's people from the beginning repeats itself. God makes humans, invites them to thrive in his presence. Humans try to define what's good, a dependent of him, and we prove ourselves totally unfit for that job, and God faithfully steps into our mess to forgive and heal all who admit their total dependence on their maker, okay? Jesus knows you will fail him. And that statement is meant to bring you comfort. It does, nothing surprises him about you. He delights in you that he calls his daughter or son and he knows you will fail him despite your best intentions. And he faithfully steps into your mess to forgive and heal you. And how do you access that transforming forgiveness? Admit you need it. He's so good, he's so gracious. 
And so a bunch of really dramatic things happen quickly through this text, just to list them for you. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is betrayed by Judas, who he intentionally calls friend in response. And then Jesus willingly surrenders to his enemies. He gets misrepresented by Peter as team captain. He gives his <laughs> disciples one final teaching before he goes to the cross, a teaching about how to surrender without violence to those who would do you violence. And it's, at this point, it's too much. It immediately results in his disciples deserting him and running for their lives. Talk about dramatic, okay? There's so much here we're gonna talk about in the coming weeks as we wrap up Matthew. But I just wanna ask one question about this whole flow here. Where does Jesus get his relentless confidence in God? Like all of this stuff is happening to him and he's dauntless. Yeah, he is super emotional in the garden. He absolutely petitions the Father for another way. But how does he actually strike up the, the, the guts, the gall, or whatever you wanna call it, to say, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, I'm in this. His best friend betrays him, uh, denies him, disowns him. His enemies come in like they're winning, and, it, and then they fall asleep. They literally fall asleep after Jesus commands them to stay awake during his pain. For Three times he commands them. He's like, are you still sleeping? Do you not see that I'm sorrowful? For whatever reason, they fail him then too. And, and where, how, do, how does he do it? How does he stay true? And please don't, I just wanna say, don't say because he was God and not really a human like you and me. That's kinda of where I wanna go in my mind. Oh, he did it because he was God. He didn't do that miracle or that, he stayed sinless just because he was just God or whatever, just broad terms. No, that's actually uh, heresy. <laughs> that's actually a horrible theology that actually was deemed heresy at the Council of Chalcedon. It's called docetism. And, and it's the idea that uh, Jesus only seemed like a human, but was really just God, which allowed him to do all his super cool Jesus-y stuff. And uh, yeah, that's not the case. Jesus was completely human in every sense while being Emmanuel, truly God with us. One way to put this is that Jesus, imagine Jesus weeping in the garden, kissed by his betrayer, this is Jesus willingly giving up the use of his incommunicable attributes. That's basically, you know, the, all the omnis. Omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. He, lay, he willingly laid down uh, the omni card for his Jesusness. So, so, he, so apart from actively sinning, Jesus is living as a, he, he didn't actively, he was human exactly like you and me. So he lays down the incommunicable attributes of deity to live as a perfectly spirit-filled man. So Jesus, the perfectly spirit-filled man, fully obedient to the Father, is blazing the trail into faithfulness. How is he doing this? <laughs> like, his experience is exactly like yours and mine. Hebrews says, tempted in all points as we are. All points as we are. 
yet without sin. Which, it just makes me ask this question, where on, where on earth did he draw this unstoppable trust? Where's that reservoir? I want that. For, for such a difficult moment, I mean, he's facing the darkest situation ever, and he's 100% loving to his enemies. I want that strength. Like, I can barely handle my low-grade anxiety at 2 a.m. on Saturday night. Like, like or, or when things are crazy at home and, and all five kids are around and I'm trying to study and Sandy's like, hey, can you help with this? I can lose my cool so easily and that doesn't even hurt. That's not even pain. That's not even real pain. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so weak. And meanwhile, Jesus here is brilliantly reflecting the heart of the Father in the middle of intensity. And I'm like, how is he doing this? What's his secret? And thankfully, he tells us. So it's not a secret. Jesus trusts the scriptures. And he has the Holy Spirit's strength to trust the scriptures. The same spirit available to you and me and the same scriptures we have in our laps. Well, look at the proof is in the pudding here. Verse 31, Jesus says at the beginning, you'll all fall away for it is written. I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Again, in verse 54, when Peter's trying to hack off the guy's ear and defend him violently, uh, he's like, no, no, no. How else would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And again, this has to take place so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus trusts the scriptures. And three, so three different times in this passage, he explicitly grounds his peace in the middle of pain, he grounds it in the scriptures. In his moment of greatest pain, and he, and he points everyone around him to read. Re read this, this is what's happening. I trust this. Jesus' entire view of reality was shaped by this. And this is why Jesus could confidently surrender to the worst suffering known to humans. This is why he says, this has to happen, and I'm in it. Uh, Jesus demonstrated a profound trust in the written word of God. And it's not just in the comfort of a Sunday church gathering in America. It's in this moment of greatest betrayal, abandonment, loss, imminent pain, and death. Jesus believed the scriptures are to be trusted. Which means, and I risk sounding silly for stating the obvious here, but it means Jesus read them. Like Jesus read them, he read the Bible. And his Bible, obviously, is the Old Testament we have, the Hebrew Scriptures. It, the books weren't even in the same order we have them in. It ended with Second Chronicles instead of Malachi. Very interesting history behind the making of the canon. And Jesus trusted it. And Jesus read it. Just profound thought. And I know it's, it's, it sounds obvious, Jesus read the Bible, but based on the current statistics that are out there, this doesn't go without saying. The fact that Jesus read the Bible is, is something that is a massive point that people don't talk about nearly enough. Why, why? Because if Jesus followers by definition are people who are to be shaped by the scriptures like Jesus, then we gotta read them um, and study them and realize that they lead us into all the truth necessary for God's salvation of us and the world. And, and that also requires a submission to their authority, which that's when we start to grate against modern sensitivities. 
biblical authority is where all, all the hot debates are right now. And all the, all the hair starts bristling up. Rightly so. Authority has been misused and abused all over the place, especially in the church. We hear stories in the news of authority abuse. And so when you start talking about biblical authority, hair starts to raise, and rightfully so. There have, there have been abuses of authority in the church that must be renounced. But biblical authority must be upheld because Jesus upheld it. Jesus allowed his whole view of God to be shaped by it. But at least here in America, less people are making the scriptures a priority. According to Barna, they did a, every year they do a state of the Bible report, that's what they call it. Um, watch this, the percentage of Bible disengaged Americans dropped from 54% 54, 54 in 2018 to 45% in 2019. What's Bible disengaged? That's people who claimed that they interact with the Bible infrequently, if ever, and it has minimal impact on their lives or decision-making. So that's Bible disengaged people, and it dropped, that dropped. There used to be 54%, I was 45. That seems cool, that seems promising, until you see the other end of the spectrum. The percentage of Bible-centered Americans dropped from 9% in 2018 to 5% in 2019. And Bible-centered, they define as people who claim to interact with the Bible frequently, and it's transforming their relationships, and it's shaping their choices. Okay, so that raises a question. Like, where, where are the people going? Where's the view of the scriptures going if less people are disengaged and less people are centered and shaped by the Bible? Well, they seem to be going into this mushy middle from 2018 to 2019, there's been an 8% increase among people who register themselves as Bible-friendly or Bible-neutral. And the friendly-neutral is described as people who interact with the Bible fairly sporadically, and it might be a source of spiritual insight someday. Which sounds like it might pass, it sounds at least like something to be thankful for, right? Kind of. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Bible neutral isn't much help in the NICU. Trust me. Before we launched Park Hill Church, uh, this church, we started pre-launch gatherings in the spring of 2017, and my very, my very first pastoral like, thing that I did, aside from a Sunday gathering, was to perform a funeral for a two-week-old baby boy born terminal. Two weeks into church plant, happy church planting, right? Um, Bible neutral, Bible neutral can't stand up to that kind of pain. Or maybe let's bring it more into a more, maybe more common occurrence in this room. When you find out your friend or even your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse has been lying to your face for months, Bible friendly is shaky ground at that moment. Like the idea, you know, maybe, maybe there's some wisdom, I'll get around to reading, I'll get around to developing a rhythm. You know, I know God wants me to like Spend more time, like this whole, this, this indecisive pattern we all kind of like sink back into when things seem okay. What about when they don't? 
And here's the reality, guys. We don't, we don't read the scripture to find the right rules to follow. That's not, that's not the only reason. We don't just read the scriptures because the church tells us to. We don't read because that's just what Christians are supposed to do. No, just like regular rhythms of prayer, fasting, giving, and remembering the poor, reading and studying the scriptures is essential to Christian spiritual formation. To be a follower of Jesus is to commit to a community that is actively seeking to be spirit-empowered and scripture-saturated just like Jesus was. And so where does Jesus get his strength? In the most difficult hour, he trusts the scriptures and he receives strength from the spirit of God because he just came out of like an intense moment of prayer. He trusts the scriptures. They're faithful to reveal what God is like. There's no doubting if God is something other than he is. The scriptures reveal him. So we follow Jesus in trusting the scriptures and asking for the spirit's power to follow him. Uh, Because remember, remember, This is like the cycle of this text. Here's where we tend to end up. Verse 56, the disciples' story is our story. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is where we tend to end up, you guys. We tend to abandon Jesus. I like what Dan said last gathering. Uh, when he did communion, hopefully, I'm, I guess I'm stealing his thunder now because he's gonna do it again, but um, he, he just said, we're, we're in a spectrum from Judas to Peter. We just need to admit it. Whether we're outright betraying or we're just like well-intentioned and cowardly or whatever, we're all just kind of threatened to be in a spectrum but from Judas to Peter. Our human nature is sick. That sounds like strong language. It is strong language, but it's Jesus's language. In this chapter, he says, hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that word weak is the same Greek word that's translated sick all throughout the New Testament. Our human nature is weak. Our human nature is sick, and and Jesus knows this. This is the sun shining over the fog, right? Jesus knows this. That's why, that's why he simply invites us to admit that. That's why he tells the Pharisees who think they're not sick that, hey, I didn't come for those who are, quote, unquote, healthy. I come for the sick. In other words, those who admit they are, which is all of us. This is how good God is. We need the Spirit of God. And then verse 57, those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled, but Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And this verse right here, I've, I've heard a lot of teachings on this verse. Um, like, uh, some people make a big deal out of Peter following Jesus at a distance, like, oh, he should have been closer or whatever. I think maybe that's true, I just tend to think that Peter is actually being pretty brave here. Um, he knows where Jesus is headed. He knows where he's probably headed, and he still goes into the temple court where the trial's being held. Uh, and I, I want to acknowledge there is an element of bravery here. But here's the greater reality bravery without prayer fails in crisis. 
Bravery without prayer fails in the test. Without being formed by the scriptures and filled with the spirit of God, aware of his need, he's sleeping through prayer meetings and confident in his uh, human nature. And, and, and bravery alone won't cut through that fog. In, in a real life crisis that sparks confusion. If we will not pray with Jesus, we'll end up sitting with Jesus' enemies and denying Jesus with our lives. That's why I love what uh, F.D. Bruner says, prayer is faith breathing. Do you pray? We just talked about reading the Bible, great. Do you pray? Do you prioritize an hour of God consciousness a day or 30 minutes of, as a Christian, who is defined by God's, God's understanding of you and the world, how much time do you allot to attending to him and asking, Lord, have mercy. My human nature is weak. My spirit is willing. Give me strength. If that's not part of my regular rhythm, I'm telling you, it's at minimum, if I don't do 30 minutes a day of God-conscious time, whether it's walking in his presence down the street, praying out loud, or in the Bible, or whatever, I cannot function. It is night and day for me. Like, if we will not pray with Jesus, we will end up sitting with Jesus' enemies and denying him with our lives. Watch how the chapter ends, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also, you were with Jesus. And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he denies it. And, and then another girl, a servant girl, and uh, this, is a mis this was a more male-centric, less female-honoring culture. So by, by being clear that it was a girl, the author's saying Peter was cowardly because that was the context back then. And so he's saying uh, another servant girl saw him and said to the people, yeah, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. <laughs> I like that detail. He like drops in a cuss word and he's like, no, I don't know the man, dang it. And after a little while, and after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and he's like, surely, they're like, surely you are one of them. Dead giveaway, that accent, you're from the north. And, and he began to call down curses. He just lets all the expletives out at this point and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And the next verse is ominous. It's the last part of the chapter. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then, we get, and then we get the lesson. Peter remembered the word Jesus spoke. He remembered the words of Jesus. And then that last line, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter gets it. I think he's, this is, I think this is the crux, a hinge moment, clearly a hinge moment in his life. He's still gonna have questions as the Gospel of John uh, clarifies when, when he tells the story. But at this moment, we see Peter's weakness is our own weakness. His doubts are our doubts. And at the same time, Peter's tears show us the path to receiving God's healing. Peter's tears open up the path for God's mercy to come to us. What does he do? Again, he remembers the words of God, Jesus. He remembers the words of Jesus. It's a great start of a new life right there. 
remember what God says, and, it, and he sees his weakness accurately. Remembering Jesus' words gives you the right perspective on yourself. This is why the scriptures are a like, non-negotiable part of Christian formation. Because we look into the mirror and see the correct reflection of our character. And then we see the correct kind of gravity that we are in, in our weakness. And then we can express the right kind of gratitude for his forgiveness by admitting our need. That's it, Peter's in it, he's in it right now. He sees his weakness accurately and he weeps over his serial undependability. He gets it. At the beginning of the passage, it was all Jesus' disciples, we'll never fail you. And, and now all his disciples abandon him. And so here's the undependability of our humanity on full display. The way Matthew tells this story, we get this ominous sense, it's not just Israel, <laughs> it's not just Rome. Jesus' followers left him for dead too by falling asleep in prayer, by our violence and our cowardice and by flat out denying Jesus in front of a watching world. It's not just the non-Christians, like, it's not just them out there that get the bad rap in this story. It's, they're not, it's not them, it's, it's the church that's looking pretty dismal at this point in this story. It's the people of God, okay? Uh, so we're gonna come to the tables and we're gonna hold in our hearts what I think is our verse. All the disciples deserted him and fled. All the disciples deserted him and fled. Thankfully, Jesus has, he knows this, and he has plenty of his own verses. <laughs> because thankfully, Jesus, ah, the disciples' failure isn't Matthew's main point. Yes, all the disciples deserted him and fled, but Matthew holds up the disciples' failure in order to feature the greater reality of Jesus' total faithfulness for you, for your healing, to make you the kind of covenant family member, the kind of covenant son, the kind of covenant daughter that he sees you becoming. You can actually start walking in victory today because of Jesus' first victory. This is the sun shining over the fog. This is the sun that actually dissipates the fog. He has been faithful, so as we eat and drink of him, we're actually accepting his death into us, believing that he did this for us to burn away the fog of our undependability because of his fully dependable uh, work on the cross and work in resurrecting. Um, that's Matthew's big picture. Isaiah 53, 6, this has got to be in Matthew's mind at this moment. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. That's the big picture, and Peter's getting it. The good news is, <laughs> our human nature is all sick, and he, Jesus knows this, and he specifically came for that reason. He specifically came for those who admit that reality. Above the fog, a greater work's been happening, the sun's shining, God and Christ passed through all our brokenness and sin and undependability. Jesus, the completely spirit-empowered human, was obedient for us. This is part of what it means that Jesus died for us. Father, Son, Spirit agonizing together because of our failure. And now, you guys, that same Spirit that empowered Jesus to be faithful is a endless reservoir of power for you. 
We can walk in faithfulness. I believe that is a word for like, if not all of us, I'd be surprised. I believe that is a word for all of us. In the pre-gathering prayer time that we do every Sunday, that was a constant theme as we were speaking to what we sensed God doing for today. We believe God wants to awaken people to the gravity of their soul sickness, not to leave us there, but specifically to lead us into healing. And there are some who maybe are aware, and I think this is kind of the thing I was thinking. There are some that are aware that they're sick and they've been trying to heal themselves. And you're well-meaning. And yet the only cure is the power of God through the work of Christ. And the only access point to that power is admitting your need and asking. Jesus said, whoever desires the Holy Spirit, the Father is good enough to give to those who ask. It's so good, you guys. This is the Father over you. This is who he is. This is his character in your life. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's pretty good. He's really good. And he wants to invite you into a posture of admitting and asking. So we're gonna come to the table now. Let's stand together and let's take in the full weight of Jesus' death and gratitude for his faithfulness to the Father in suffering. I really believe that Jesus is present in the bread and cup. In the words of one of my mentors, uh, (laughs) the, the table of the Lord is the space on earth where the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. And I believe Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to find you admitting your need for him there. He wants to hear you asking, opening your life to his power because he has limitless resources for you to walk in his way and to break the cycle, whatever that cycle is. Heavenly Father, would you come right now by the presence and power of your spirit and break cycles of anxiety, addiction, depression, lust, pride, greed, arrogance, narcissism, and lying. Because these things dehumanize your human family. Have your way with your people, we pray. May we see you in a special way at the table like you so desire.